I want to pick back up where we left off last week, kind of run through it real quick, just kind of as a refresher and and uh, just kind of bring us up to speed. We're looking at uh, what is known as the tulip doctrine. It's a representation of Calvinism. It's mainly an acronym for the main five points, uh, the, the, the main five tenets of Calvinism, if you will. Um, Summed up in this, T is total depravity, U, unconditional election, L stands for limited atonement, I for irresistible grace, P for perseverance of the saint or saints. Um, I'm sure you might have heard, as we said, you might have heard some of these in one form or another, but this is what that word tulip stands for. So if you hear of the tulip doctrine or the five points of Calvinism, this is what it's referencing. And so uh, be aware that there are some out there who profess a full five-point Calvinism. Some are a four-point, some are a three-point, because they agree or disagree with some of these, these points that we'll talk about. And it's going to be unconditional uh, election and probably limited atonement is going to be the ones that they're going to disagree with. I'd like to get to unconditional election and at least um, introduce it, but we'll see where time takes us uh, because we still have some... Some things to say about total depravity. So running through real quick, total depravity, here's what is meant when you hear that uh, taught or, or spoken of. from a, And this, again, is Reformed theology. Um, some outright call it Calvinism, but it's usually going to be Reformed theology or Reformed fill-in-the-blank church, Reformed Presbyterian, Reformed Baptist. Um, when you hear that, that's kind of a buzzword that this is going to be what they hold to. Total depravity is one of those foundational doctrines. All of these other doctrines are going to come up from that and what's called the sovereignty of God, and we'll talk about that in just a bit. But it's really kind of, this is the center point, the total depravity of man. And they state that man is completely and totally corrupted by sin. He has fallen in sin, and this fallen state encompasses his whole being, his spirit, his mind, his heart, his body, and his will. He is by very nature a sinner and not righteous. Therefore, man has a natural tendency <coughs> or a natural desire for sin and not for God. And he seeks only to fulfill his own fleshly lusts. Again, we would agree with that. I, I didn't list verses. I, I'm not going to go through them here. This is Romans 3, stuff we're, we're familiar with, because we agree with those statements. I agree 100% with those statements. Yes, we are fallen in sin. Now, we need to understand the terms, too. When they talk about depravity, they talk about our fallenness in nature. And when they say total, it means we're completely fallen. Not that we're the worst we could be. Not that we're totally the worst sinners. And, and certainly we see some people really take their depravity to a whole level. Man, not all man is like that, but all of man is fully fallen. Make sense? We're, we're fallen as a being, spirit, soul, body. The departure where we say nope, where, where, where we split off, is the implication they make of not just total depravity, but what's called total inability. This is what we kind of dug into last week. Total inability. Man is totally depraved and therefore unable to produce any acts of good at all. Remember we talked about that. It's kind of moving quick, I understand, but just kind of want to give us a refresh on it. Um, man is totally depraved. We cannot do any good. Quoting John Piper, who is one of the 
prominent um, voices. He says, Our sinful corruption is so deep and so strong as to make us slaves of sin and morally unable to overcome our own rebellion and blindness. This inability to save ourselves from ourselves is total. We are utterly dependent on God's grace to overcome our rebellion, give us eyes to see, and effectively draw us to the Savior. Again, that statement sounds pretty good, but there are loaded terms in there. For God to overcome our rebellion and effectively, which means He calls, we're coming. There's there's no rejection. He will overcome, effectively call us because we cannot do it for ourselves. He goes on to clarify and say, if we are dead in our sins and unable to submit to God because of our rebellious nature, then we will never believe in Christ unless God overcomes our rebellion. We cannot believe out of ourselves. It's going to be an act of God to bring us to that. That's what they say. We are totally enabled. Man is unable to repent. Man is unable to believe outside of a sovereign act of God upon him because repentance or belief is an act of good. That's how they view repentance. That's how they view belief. It's a good act. No one is good. No, not one. We cannot reproduce good acts, so we cannot produce repentance. It is impossible for man who is dead in sins and dead to God to do for himself. Again, kind of review, but that's... That's where we're going. Quoting John MacArthur, we are a race of Lazaruses. And as we said, Lazarus is one of their favorite go-tos. When Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, that is a total picture of salvation. Um, God calling those who are dead to life. The dead man can't raise himself. Well, that's here's he goes on to say, dead men can't hear, dead men can't think. Dead men can't respond because they're dead, and dead means the absolute inability to do anything. We are dead in sins. We cannot respond. Totally unable to believe. Quoting John MacArthur still, he says, In regeneration we are basically passive. It is when we have been awakened and granted repentance and faith that it all comes together concurrently to bring about salvation. And as we'll mention in just a minute, they believe you must be born again to be saved. You cannot be saved of your own. It is God bringing you to life, causing you to be born again, then giving you the faith as He saves you. And it all works concurrently. As John states here, we are passive. It happens. It is done to us. We walked through some passages. Uh, We're not going to have time to tonight, but we'll kind of give a synopsis of it. In Ephesians 2, you were dead in sins, walking according to the course of this world. And what does it say? And He saved us. He saved us, raised us up, made us to sit together. It was an act that He did upon us. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, it says, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. All of it's the gift, according to... Uh, reformed theology the grace the faith and the salvation so not only is it by grace but the faith that you had was a gift God doing that in you because you are unable to produce that yourselves and I I don't have it tonight but I broke out my trustee MacArthur commentary Bible and it says that right there so that's the danger of some of these these commentary Bibles people buy it's right there somebody's going to read that and it's going to 
bend their mind toward it, and it's going what I believe is the wrong way. It's not what I believe the Bible teaches. Okay, John one eleven, where it says uh, they were made, they were. I better look at that and not misquote it. John chapter 1, verse 11, He came to His own, His own received Him not, but as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become sons of God, even to them that believe on His name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. Had nothing to do with the flesh, has nothing to do with man's will, they were born of God. They're going to take that kind of a reading because we cannot believe, so God causes us to be born. Again, John chapter 3 Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot understand, he cannot believe. So he must be born again before he can believe. That's the, the, the way they're going to take. And they, and they say, as the wind blows where it listeth and no man knows, so it is with those who are born again of the Spirit. Boom! It happens. Nobody knows it's coming. It just happens because it is of God. We cannot do it of ourselves. Of course, John 5.21 um, couple more passages we listed. How do we respond to this? Because I believe it is error. Uh, with just clear, rational, biblical responses. What does God say in His Word? God says, yes, man is totally depraved, but is he unable to repent? Is he unable to believe or to receive? We looked at Acts 17 as uh, Paul is preaching there in Athens, and he says this, that they should seek the Lord happily if they might feel after Him and find Him. You see the picture? Just a reaching out. A, a, a cry for help, if you would. Though He be not far from every one of us, verse 30, in the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. That phrase is um, very important. Would God command us to do what we cannot do? Like, do this, but you're not going to be able to. Uh, I don't think God works like that. Isaiah 45, 22, Look to me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. That's an open invitation. Old Testament nonetheless. Look to me, everyone, and be saved. Well, why would He ask us? Does God command something that we cannot do? He invites all, but only enables some, like, psych, not you. Come, come, come. Nope, not you, sorry. I'm going over here to the guy that didn't even come. That's the picture it's painted. Um, I, I, don't, I don't see that. Okay, here's where we we're slow down. This is where we're picking up where we left off. So all of that said, and I think, I think, we, we, I think we understand everybody kind of get a picture of what we're talking about. Can man initiate his own salvation? Is this something we come up with? Because that's what they say we'll believe. And they have labels. Um, there's Pelagian, semi-Pelagian, Arminian, some of these big words that just have to do with men who differed from Calvin or more importantly Augustine. This is where most of this comes from. It's an Augustinian teaching. They're going to label you or label me as that and say, well then you just can be saved whenever you want. You tell God what to do, and it's something that man produces within himself. Is that what we believe? Can, can anybody be saved anywhere when they want to? No, I don't believe that. Not biblically. And there are so many people, by the way, that have 
kind of been led into that. Hey, you want to be saved? Just repeat these words and, and we'll all be fine. And it, it was a little bit farther back in the introduction, but remember, they hate, they hate the sinner's prayer. They think it is the devil's work. And I'll just say, I think a lot of people have been misled by it, by that idea. It's been done to my own kids in the school where they attend. You want to be saved? Raise your hand. <coughs> Here's a certificate. You've been born again. Whoa, whoa, pump the brakes. That is insane. Can man just do that? No, I don't think so. I doesn't matter what I think. Not biblically. How about that? That's a better answer. No, not biblically. I believe it is 100% true that man cannot be saved apart from a work of God. Man cannot be saved apart from God moving upon him. I believe that is what the Bible teach. John 6.44, Jesus speaking, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. No one comes to God unless they are drawn of the Holy Spirit. There is not in our human nature to one day say, I'm going to repent of my sin and be saved. There is within the human nature to say, that sounds good to me. Look at those people that are happy. Maybe I want to do that. There can be some kind of a draw, but we know that there must be a repentance. There must be a confession of sin in salvation. Um, a turning away from sin, a turning to Him, we need to be saved from something. Natural humanity doesn't do that. I believe the Holy Spirit must work upon the heart of an individual. No one comes unless the Father draws. Second Corinthians 4, let's turn there. <clears throat> a famous passage for right reason. Especially when it comes to this, I think it's pretty clear. Now, there will be twisting of this, for sure, uh, to somebody who holds to Reformed theology, uh, but I, I think it's pretty clear. Verse 3, 2 Corinthians 4 and 3, If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine into them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God has shown the light of the gospel in our hearts. I don't believe we come to that light by ourselves. I believe it's God who turns on the light at some point to show sin, to show our depraved nature through the preaching of the Word, through witnessing whatever it may be. At some point, God illumines us to our sinful condition and at the same time shows us the cross. Without that happening, I don't think we come to faith. I think we stay blinded. Maybe it's blinding ourselves. Maybe it's blinded by some false teaching that Satan has put out there. But I believe the light of the gospel must shine in the heart of an individual to show sin and to show Christ. That's the work of God that must happen. He shines the light on our darkness. We do not do that of ourselves. The Spirit illumines. The Spirit convicts us of our fallen sinful state. 
Salvation is initiated by God. That's what I believe the Scriptures teach. Salvation is initiated by God, not by us. Okay, what happens after that? Once it is initiated by God, what happens? John chapter 1. Let's go back to that verse or that passage that they, they use there. And the wonderful thing about the Bible is if you keep reading a couple more verses, you might find an answer to a question you have. John chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 9. Let's start there. There's verses they don't like. This is one of them. And quite frankly, there's verses it's hard for me to explain. This is one of them. But I do know what the Bible says. I'm going to trust it for what it says. John 1 and 9. That was the true light. He's speaking of Christ. Which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Oh, they'll speak about common grace. Uh, that just the fact that we have families and love, that's a light. Well, sure, it is. <laughs> and that's owing to God's mercy. I think this speaks a little more. I think it speaks like about like things in Romans 1. That you can look around and be without excuse to say there is no God. That there's a little bit of light out there for every person to lead them to know who God is. Lights every man that comes into the world. That might keep that in, in mind because that's going to be important when you come into unconditional election. He was in the world, verse 10, and was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, as many as what? The Bible's pretty clear. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become sons of God, even to them that believe on his name which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. As many as received Him, to those who believed, born not by us coming up with it, not by our will or by our power, but of God who turns on the light to our sin, and we simply what? Receive. We believe. We place our faith in Him. Ephesians chapter 1 says that we should be to the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believe, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. You see what he's saying? You trusted. You believed. They had a part in it. Acts chapter 2. Now when they heard this, Peter's, Peter's preaching, they said, uh, what shall we do? What does Peter say? <laughs> you can't do anything. Uh, nothing. Just sit there. Maybe it'll happen if you're feeling lucky. Well, what does he say? Repent. Repent. Turn. Turn away. Repent. And what did they do? They gladly received his word. I don't see a whole lot of working. I see surrender. Receiving, believing, repenting, turning to Him. Acts chapter 26, that's where Paul's speaking to Agrippa and he says, he says, I've come to turn them from light 
Turn them from darkness to light. Turn them from the power of Satan to God. To turn, to repent, to receive. It's just simply a yielding to Him. That's what we did when we believed, right? Okay, Lord, save me. I repent. I'm falling down at Your feet. I recognize my own sinfulness and I'm trusting in You to save me. I don't believe repentance and belief and receiving are acts or works of righteousness. They're simply a reaction to the light of the Gospel. They're a recognition of our sinfulness and a turning to Him and trusting Him. And people can either react in the right way or they can react in the wrong way, right? They can accept or reject. They can receive or push it away. And in that receiving, in that believing, that's when God saves us. That's when He does that work of salvation. As we accept, He saves. It's never by our power. It's never by our initiation. It's our responding to His call and trusting Him. That's what I see repentance and belief. Is man able to trust? Is man able to believe? Well, yes, because he trusts in himself, doesn't he? If we can trust in ourselves, he's saying we can't trust in God. Doesn't the Proverbs say that? A fool trusteth in his own heart. Either I just made one up or I, I paraphrased one. And dead men can't do anything. Well, when you were dead in sins, you were walking, weren't you? Ephesians 2? Well, no, I think the Scriptures are clear. We may be dead in sins, but as the light of the Gospel turns on in our hearts... We can receive and we can believe as God does the work. Jesus says in the parable of the good soils that the seed fell on good soil. It also fell on hard soil. So either you're telling me it fell on a saved person or there are some hearts who might be more tender to the gospel than others. Because then the seed took root and it produced. And that's what we're sowing for, the good soil that's going to receive the word of God. Jesus said evil men can give good gifts. So either Jesus wasn't on par with John Calvin or the other way around. Because evil men can't do anything good, but evil men can give good gifts according to Jesus. They like to say that the leopard can't change his spots, nor the Ethiopian his skin. I, forget, I think that's in Isaiah or Ezekiel. They're quoting that Scripture. A sinner cannot do anything because a leopard can't change his spots or the Ethiopian his skin. But can't you recognize that you've got some problems? Because that's what we did when we were saved, right? Even a leopard can recognize it's a leopard. And that's all we did. I'm a sinner. Save me. I think that God, in His sovereignty, allows us the free will to choose Him at His call to us. He allows us to choose Him. In the same vein, He allows us to reject Him. So I don't believe in total inability well, and to reject I don't believe in total inability I believe in the total depravity of man but I don't believe in the total inability of man I think we are able to accept or to reject and I think scripture bears that out John says search the scriptures excuse me Jesus says in John search the scriptures you think you have eternal life they testify of me and ye will not come to me that ye might have life that means that they should he says you won't you could, but you won't. 
I am come in my Father's name, receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive, intimating that they had the power to receive. Just another kind of thing to back up. So, Any questions on that before we move along? Is that, is that clear enough? Okay, now, unconditional election. This is the second step. I hate this one. I hate this one and I hate the limited atonement one. And I don't care who it offends. To me, this is insane. Uh, but let's see what there's out there because this is, again, wildly popular. It's everywhere. Here's how they would state it. God, on the sole basis of His own good pleasure and sovereign will, in eternity past, elected or chose those whom He would save by His grace. In eternity past, God chose all whom He would save. This happened long before creation. At the same time that Christ became um, the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, in God's own good pleasure, He purposed whom Christ would die to save. This election, this choosing, is not on the basis of anything that the elect have done nor will do. It is based on His sovereign will alone and nothing else. And what I find um, interesting is they say it's specific, not random. So it's not like I'll save you and not you two and you and not you ten and you hundred and not you thousand and maybe here, here, here. No, he says he chooses specifically. that through that um, the elect are saved. That God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that will believe. And I believe we'll get there. I think that's 1 Corinthians if I'm not mistaken, but it's through that mode of preaching that the elect are saved. Brother Ryan, mm-hmm. my grandmother was raised in a primitive Baptist church which is totally Calvinist. And um, they did. They were so Calvinist. They did not give out altar calls. Neither did they support mission work. Oh wow! Because of their, they did preach, but there were no invitationals, uh, altar calls, and there were no missions. And so you have you have really kind of a mix. You have like that extreme, and then you have some that would hold to Calvinist doctrines that. You couldn't tell anything different from like us. I mean, you got invitations and mission work and, and all the kind of stuff like that. So it's really a strange mix when it comes to how people put this in practice and what churches decide to do. But yeah, you, you, on the one extreme hand, you've got, you've got that kind of mentality. The elect are going to be saved whether we, whatever we do or not. We just preach and God will do, do what He's going to do. So... And whoever he has chosen, he chose that in eternity past based on his own good will. In choosing to save some, now listen, this is carefully worded, and this is, well, you'll find this wording a lot, okay? In choosing to save some, he chooses to allow the rest of mankind to send themselves to eternal destruction due to their own sins. He chooses to pass over them and let them suffer their own fate. Okay? 
That's how most word it. What we automatically infer is called double predestination. So we hear something like unconditional election and God chooses them, those whom he's going to save. What's immediately in your mind? He also chooses those who go to hell, right? So he predestines some to heaven and he predestines some to hell. That's called double predestination. Not all Calvinists or Reformed churches will hold to that. Calvin did big time. And we're going to quote from, we're going to read from his book here and just on the next slide. But <coughs> not all of them believe that. So they'll say it's not that God sent them to hell, they're sending themselves. And God simply allows us, those who go to hell, to, to do what sin's going to do to them. He passes over them and chooses to save some in his mercy. Where it gets offensive to me is well, let's read it. The book that most or the book that all of this comes from is a book written by John Calvin. It's called Institute of the Christian Religion. I'm tired of <laughs> I've I've read pages and pages and chapters and chapters of this book in the last three or four days. Since Sunday. I think I've read a hundred or two hundred pages of it, and it's it's man, it's weighty. Some of it is really good, and some of it is really wrong. And uh, trying to get a handle on this subject, unconditional election. So let me just read you what he wrote, and I think it'll make it clear uh, what he's saying. This is all quotations from his book. Predestination we call the eternal decree of God by which he has determined in himself what would have to become of every individual of mankind. For they are not all created with a similar destiny, but eternal life is foreordained for some and eternal damnation for others. You see what he's saying? He's saying it very clear. Some are before ordained for, for eternal life and some for eternal damnation. Every, every man, therefore, being created for one of, or the other of these ends, we say he is predestined either to life or to death. That is what's called double predestination. And that is, that is full-on Calvinism. There, excuse me, those, therefore, whom God passes by, he reprobates. And that for no other cause but because he is pleased to exclude them from the inheritance which he predestines to his children. Why does God predestine some to hell? Because he is pleased to exclude them from the inheritance he gives to his predestined children. It pleases God to send some people to hell. There's nothing inconsistent with this when we say that God, according to the good pleasure of His will, without any regard to merit, elects those whom He chooses for sons while He rejects and reprobates others. That word, um, it's used in Scripture of somebody who like falls away and just turns their back on God and walks away. He's saying God makes them that way. He reprobates some.
Still quoting from his book, when God elects one and rejects another, it is not owing to any respect of the individual, but entirely to his own mercy, which is free to display and exert itself when and where he pleases. He gives to some what he denies to others, still quoting him. And then he says this, it is plain how it is plain how greatly ignorance of the principle detracts from the glory of God and impairs true humility. They're preaching a different God. <laughs> they're not preaching the God of the Bible. At all. If they're preaching. I don't, I don't know. This is really blowing my mind. Seriously. I don't think most people understand it when they, when they say they hold to some of these things. Used to be when it, when I heard somebody was Calvinist, he just he knows who's going to be saved and he's chosen them. But when you kind of get into what this man has written, I mean, this is his book with people quote from, and he says stuff like this. To me, it's offensive. And as you said, it is not in in care is not in line with God's character. They. Uh, yes and no, because I understand. I understand where. This is a misunderstanding. I don't have to point up there. I can do it here. That's a misunderstanding. How they define that. Who is the elect? Because if you call the elect all the save, then you have to come up with something like that. If you ignore the church and the Bible, you have to start coming up with some of this stuff. And in their efforts to do it, they, they are really lifting up the glory of God and the power of God and the office of God and really denigrating man, which they should. But with, without understanding what foreknowledge is and the election is and God's purpose in election, some of these things we've talked about the past two Sundays, God has a people, God has a plan. You miss that and you make it all about who's going to be saved and not, you, you'll start going down these roads. Yeah. So that's what they're, they're defining, or that, that's what they believe when it comes to um, unconditional election. I wrote this down. Of all the doctrines of grace, that's what this is all called. Of all the doctrines of grace, this one is very hard to pin down. I can find pages and pages and pages on total depravity and limited atonement and irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints so that... Most of the explanations that they give to me, it makes sense. I can see the argument. Doesn't mean I believe it, but okay, I see where they're coming from. Like total inability. I can see where they would come from that. They, they explain it well. Unconditional election, it's basically either you believe it or you don't believe in a sovereign God. That's like all the writing out there. That, that's what it is. Well, God elects some and you better believe it or you're, you're clay. You're not the potter. It's not really a good explanation. It's like believe this or... Be quiet, you know? So, let's look at the biblical basis they pull from. I'll add in a few objections as we go. I'll quote a couple of them, and if we get time, we'll see what the Scripture says. Am I moving too fast? Is this okay? Everybody tracking? Okay. Romans 9. Let's go there. <clears throat> right where we're at on Sunday mornings, I hope my, I hope that you understand the explanations I've given or what I've seen over the past couple Sundays of what Paul's talking about here. Let's read it. I'll give you their view of it and see, uh, see what it says. 
They usually start in verse 10. Not only this, but Rebekah had also conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. For the children being not yet born, neither having done good or evil, so there's no purpose to elect them. There's nothing done that one is better than the other. So that the purpose of God, according to the election, might stand not of works, it's not of anything they've done, but of him that calleth. It's God's call, God's foreknowledge, God's sovereignty. It was said to her, the elder shall serve the younger. For it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Jacob was chosen in the womb because God chose him. It was not based on anything that they had done or that they would do, but of him that calleth. Jacob was chosen because God elected him. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. It's God who elects by his mercy those who will be saved, and simply that. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for the same purpose, have I raised thee up that I might show my power in thee and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore he hath mercy on whom he will have mercy and whom he will he hardeneth. Who he will he saves and whom he will he does not allow to be saved. He hardens them. I'm not going to get too much in that because that's Sunday and I haven't started on my message yet. So we'll, uh, we'll talk more about this Pharaoh and hardening business and the sovereignty of God and how that all mixes in because God is sovereign. Let's get that right from straight, straight from the get-go. God can do what He wants. We all understand that, right? He is an under no obligation to us to do anything, but He has revealed Himself in a way. He has... Um, um, how do I put that word? I wouldn't say constrained himself to act in certain ways, but he has shown himself in the way that he is, that he this is how he is. He is a loving God. He is a merciful God. He is a holy God, a righteous God. And this is how he acts toward us as he calls us. Anyways. Thou will say to me, Why did thee yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? And it goes on with the potter and the clay. And Jacob was elected before they were ever born just because God elected him. It wasn't based on any works. It was chosen by God. But every time, and they, they hang on every single word in verse 11 and verse 12 and verse 13. That was the purpose of God according to election. God chose Jacob before they were born out of his mercy. But they don't ever go to Isaac and Ishmael. They miss that. They go right to Jacob and Esau. Paul goes to Isaac and Ishmael Isaac is the seed. Isaac is the promised line. He's the child that required faith, right? He's my promise, my work. They go around that and they go to the, oh, God selected Jacob. Never the mind that he saw what Esau would do and he knew what would happen. And Jacob would be the next one of the promised line, the one who had faith. And Esau threw his faith away. They don't, they don't say that. They say God chose him. Esau never had a chance. He was hardened. Ephesians 1. I don't want to go there yet. We'll go there in a... We'll probably go there next time. Because as we walk through it, I want to see... It says we're electing who? Christ. And the fullness of Christ is the church at the end of the chapter. 
We are predestined to the glory of His grace to be in Him. And the fullness of Him is the elect way, the elect people. But if you miss that, then you're going to have some problems. So we'll come to that probably next week. Let me give you some statements by then, by um, some leading uh, people, and, and then we'll probably be just about done. John Piper, uh, this is DesiringGod.org uh, and uh, some things like that, Together for the Gospel, Gospel Coalition, very prolific writer. John Piper's statement helps clarify by uh, what most mean by this today. He says this, Unconditional election is God's free choice before creation. <clears throat> Here's the big one, and this is what I wanted to point to. Not based on foreseen faith, to which traitors he will grant faith and repentance, pardoning them and adopting them into his everlasting family of joy. They say election has nothing to do with foreseen faith. God does not choose whom will be saved because he knows they will believe. And that's another schooling, a school of thinking out there when it comes to election that God elected those to be saved that he knew would believe on him. And a five-point Calvinist says, no, it's not based on any foreseen faith. It is based only on God's choice. And some of the terms they use mean very important things. So foreknowledge and sovereignty and the elect are very important terms with very important definitions. Okay, They are going to use them very specifically. So let's, let's look at them and we'll be done. When they say foreknowledge, they say God knows us, not just knew about us or or has a acquaintance with us. They they say it's no in the biblical sense, like Adam knew his wife, Cain knew his wife. They say God knows us that intimate way before. So it's not they're not talking about, oh, God knew who would be faithful. No, God knew in a very special way, those whom he would choose. This is John MacArthur. Says, uh, let's turn to 1 Peter Peter 1-2. Peter is writing to those who are scattered. In verse 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. He says they're not elect because God foresaw that they would have faith. No, He knew them. He chose them before. The foreknowledge that Peter refers to is not to be confused with foresight, like knowing before. I believe in the foreknowledge of God. He knows every single thing that's going to come to pass ever. He knows all who's going to be saved. He knows all who's going to be faithful. He knows every choice that man is going to make. I believe God is that sovereign. He knows everything that's ever going to happen with everyone. But they say that's foresight. That's not foreknowledge. He said that that's not to be confused with foresight because that makes man sovereign as if he's deserving of some credit for making a good choice. Seeking God on his own terms and making God some kind of reactor who is in heaven saying, Oh, come on, guys, please. You know, I would really like it to work out this way. Please accept my son. Please be saved. I really would like if you'd be saved. 
but I'm waiting to see what you're going to do. That's the character that they make. <laughs> no, they say, no, God knew. Not only did God knew, no, He chose them. Not only did He chose them, He saves them by irresistible grace. And not only does He save them, He's going to keep them to glory. John Piper, the plan of redemption was never conceived to include the saving power of human self-determination. Predestination does not refer to the choice of all who or of who will be saved. It refers to the destiny appointed for those who are chosen. An individual's faith has nothing to do with the choice of God. Let's end with this, and then we'll we'll pick it up here next week. The word elect, when is read in Scripture to a reformed a person who holds Reformed doctrine, it always applies to salvation, period. 100%. The elect are the saved. Election is salvation. Unequivocally, period. Except, and here's what twists my mind. Except when it comes to the Old Testament. Oh yeah, it's God's people, Israel. <laughs> They'll say that. I, I didn't write this down. John MacArthur, I remember the quote, he says, admittedly, election is talking about a people when it's in the Old Testament. And it can't be doing that when it's in the New Testament? You're fine when it comes to talking about God's people. God has elected a people to Himself, the nation of Israel, to proclaim His glory, to be His representatives, to follow Him faithfully. But when it comes to the New Testament, all that's done, and now it only means salvation? To me, he's like, you guys are so smart, how'd you miss that? Now all of a sudden, at the last half of the Bible, it's always only salvation? Well, again, if you read it that way, then you're going to have issues. You're going to come up with some issues. So, oh, here's a good one. The term elect or chosen is synonymous with Christian, with saved, with born again. He made the choice, not us. Quoting John MacArthur. So is that what the Bible says? Well, I think the Bible is pretty clear on who the elect is. And yes, God has chosen people. God has His purpose according to election. And we'll get into that a little bit next week. So hopefully that's clear. Kind of brings some things uh, to light about what TULIP 